The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. I want to talk to you about the biblical principles on life. Since it is the biblical principles on life, I have made extensive use of scripture in this and uh, some of those quotations, at least the longer ones, are on the handout. It did strike me that uh, running a conference and ruining a conference has the same uh, slight difference. It's got the letter I and it's like the homoousia and the homoousia. It's that little difference. So let's run it, not ruin it. Uh, Talking about the biblical principles on life, the starting point for any such discussion is the fact which the book of Genesis declares that God is the creator and the Lord of life. As such, his words on how we are to regard life are not just important, they're authoritative. We're told that he made the world and everything in it to swarm with swarms of living creatures. And that he gave all these creatures the breath of life. That's Genesis 1.30. The creatures of the earth, in other words, matter to God. In the case of mankind, there's evidence of a more intimate and personal involvement. The Lord took the dust from the earth and personally breathed the breath of life into it. And thereby, Genesis 2 verse 7, man became a living creature. Now, there are, of course, distinctions between man and the other creatures. Let me talk about them. The one I'm concerned with here, there are many, but the one I'm concerned with here is that God speaks to Adam. He does not speak to the other animals. To speak to someone in general implies that he's able to respond. Uh, To speak to someone from a position of authority is a call for responsibility. Adam is response-able. He's able to respond. That means that he's also responsible. He's accountable. His ability to respond means he's accountable. Thus, God's blessing of Adam also entails the condition that he be accountable to him, that he obey him. So he is responsible under God. What's he responsible for? For life on earth, beginning with his own life. Now, Jesus is that Creator. Acts uh, 3 verse 15 calls Jesus the author of life. John's gospel declares to us in its famous lines, this is the first quotation on your sheet, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, that life is symbolized back in Genesis by the tree of life, Genesis 2, verse 9. It's one of the two trees that's specifically mentioned in the garden. Now, this tree of life symbolizes the fullness of God's existence when when man is accountable to God. Not only his physical life, but also his spiritual life, his righteousness, his holiness. And the fact that Jesus, the Word of God, capital W, is the Creator is significant for reasons that we, or at least I touched on yesterday. The fact that everything has been created by the Logos of God, 
that's the Greek word for word, um, means that not only does he have authority over life, it means that it bears his mark. The created order bears the mark of the logos. That means that it's logical. It means that we can understand it. It also relates back to the person of God. Remember that God, his primary category is that of personhood. Um, And that means that it can be understood and discussed by those who bear his image, human persons. The animals don't understand the created order. They can't. It's one of the reasons they don't speak. They, They lack that same understanding. And they lack the accountability. And as a side note, this again is precisely why educational progress has been possible under Christendom, under Christian thinkers, in a way that it has nowhere else in history. The Eastern world has not made scientific progress in general. It has recently because it's adopted Christian categories and Christian forms of understanding. But in general, uh, technological, scientific progress in, in all spheres of life has only been possible in areas where the assumptions of Christendom are in, 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 uh, in place. And that's because Christians have assumed the comprehensibility of everything God has created, firstly, and secondly, that it's good and right to understand it. It's right to do so. Now, in many, you may say this is obvious, but it's not obvious. Many religions think that not only can we not understand the world, but there's something wrong in doing so. It's transgressive. Uh, to do that. And so we can see in uh, just this short account in Genesis that understanding and living are always connected. Remember, I'm talking about life. So life uh, has various dimensions. Let me move on. It has physical dimensions, it has spiritual dimensions, and it even has eternal dimensions. The word that most fully summarizes the consequence of Adam's sin is death. This was God's warning in Genesis 2, verse 17. The curse pronounced on the earth following Adam's sin is that of death. Quote, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Genesis 3, 19. To prevent man from having an eternal spiritual death in a physical life, God says, lest he reach out his hand and also of the tree of life take and eat and live forever, man's expelled from the garden. This is a mercy on God's part. Now, the physical consequences of uh, sin, namely death, are evident, however, in everything that follows. So in the post-lapsarian world described in Genesis 4, the first son of Eve, Cain, kills the second. Now we see what death is, and we see it in murder. Abel, uh, sorry, and in the book of the generations of Adam, which is how Genesis 5 begins, verse 1, each genealogical entry, with the sole exception of Enoch, concludes with the refrain, and he died. So God's the author of life. They've been expelled from the garden because of sin. They're they're, uh, condemned to die, and each uh, genealogy concludes with, and he died. Now, this refrain is poignant. Genesis 6 begins with a limitation on the human lifespan, and it ends with the destruction of all life on earth, save that of Noah, his family, and pairs of representative animals. Now, the message throughout is absolutely clear, seeking to be as gods, and rejecting God, uh, rejecting God separates mankind from God and thereby separates them from life. 
and thus invariably it ends in death. So this law of nature is a direct result of the transgression of the command of God. And note the priority there. Disobeying God's command results in death. But it's the, it's the address of God and it's the disobedience of his command that, that leads to death. It's there from the very beginning. So law and life, word and life are hand in glove. Now, death is just life in the, like life in the sense that it is physical and spiritual in nature. Um, our contemporary materialist culture, which follows the absurd reductionist thinking of uh, modern science, only acknowledges physical death. Uh, although even when they do this, they betray their Christian roots. And the reason I say that is in, in Eastern religions, they actually deny death as well. It's a passing into a different realm. It's not actually, they don't recognize the distinction. Uh, And in pagan Greek philosophy, again, they prioritize the soul over the body, so they don't really recognize as well that the soul is eternal, right? So physical death doesn't really mean anything, per se. And, uh, And philosophically speaking, I think it's easier to defend spiritual life over the physical. If you want to say that something has... Uh, a reality to it, it's easier to defend that. And most religions will agree. It's easier to defend the immaterial than the material. Uh, But nonetheless, that's just a sidebar. Let me move on. Physical death ends our participation in earthly life. Spiritual death, on the other hand, to which physical death acts as a sign and a symbol, uh, entails a loss of fellowship with God, who is the Lord of life. That's Ephesians 2, verse 5. And unless there is an intervention of God's grace, spiritual death leads to eternal death. And that is a permanent separation from God and his blessing. John 3, verse 36. Eternal separation. And the Bible refers to this state of eternal separation from the Lord of life as hell. Not denying the existence of hell, I'm... Uh, as a a physical reality. I'm saying that that the significant consequence is that there is no more presence of God in these people's lives. Uh, Although God delights in life, it is a measure of the severity of sin that life in this present age is riddled with death. It's all around us. Not just the physical death marked by the refrain of and he died from Genesis 5 in these genealogies, but spiritual death is there everywhere as well. And the sixth commandment is not to murder. And the primary reason that scripture gives for this is that human life is important, it's special. It's not the impersonal, organic rationale of the nature worshipers of our day. Oh, that person just died, isn't that sad? There's something more important about it than that. And that is, and the reason that is more important is because mankind has been made in the image of God. This is the uh, reason the Bible gives on this. This is from Genesis 9, it's the second quotation here. God explains, For your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every breast, every beast rather, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a, a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply in it. 
is a repetition of the mandate, the dominion mandate given to Adam, but it adds the, adds the, the further addition, now that sin has entered the world, of taking a human life has a consequence. And the reason why is because man bears God's image. That's the primary transgression in murder is that God's image has been defiled. One who bears his image has been defiled. God himself has chiefly been transgressed in the act of murder. Just like uh, with, in the instance of David and Bathsheba, David says rightly, although in a sense the exclusivity sounds a little odd, against you and you alone have I sinned to God. Right? He's always the chief transgressed in our sins. Now I'm going to return to this topic in relation to biblical views on ethics in a few minutes with some specifics. Uh, But please note here that there are both positive and negative consequences to this. To obey God in the area of life is both to seek to be fruitful and multiply, to have life in its abundance and its fullness. Um, And to do so within the confines of marriage, of course, and not to murder. Uh, that's the negative consequence. Now, this will have wider implications as a consequence of Jesus' teaching. He doesn't teach anything new. He makes it clear and specific. Uh, And the Westminster Larger Catechism really uh, pushes these out here. What does the sixth commandment not to murder actually mean? Well, look at uh, your sheet here, quotations three and four. What are the duties required in the sixth commandment? Not just what not to do, but what should I do? There's, a, there's a something that I ought to do. Question 135, what are the duties required in the Sixth Commandment? The duties required in the Sixth Commandment are all careful studies and all lawful endeavors to preserve the life of ourselves and others by resisting all thoughts and purposes, subduing all passions, and avoiding all occasions, temptations, and practices which tend to the unjust taking away the life of any. By just defense thereof against violence, patient bearing of the hand of God, quietness of mind, cheerfulness of spirit, a sober use of meat, drink, physic, sleep, labor, and recreations, by charitable thoughts, love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, kindness, peaceable, mild, and courteous speeches and behavior, forbearance, readiness to be reconciled, patient, bearing, and forgiving of injuries, and requiting good for evil, comforting and succoring the distressed, and protecting and defending the innocent. That's what's required of, it's not just avoiding murder. I haven't broken the commandment against murder because, but yes, you're required to do all of these things. Note the last one, protect and defend the innocent. Question 136, what are the sins forbidden in the Sixth Commandment? The sins forbidden in the Sixth Commandment are all taking away the life of ourselves or of others, except in case of public justice, lawful war, or necessary defense. The neglecting or withdrawing the lawful and necessary means of preservation of life. Uh, Sinful anger, hatred, envy, desire of revenge, all excessive passions, distracting cares, immoderate use of meat, drink, labor, and recreations, provoking words, oppression, quarreling, striking, wounding, and whatever else tends to the destruction of the life of any. See how comprehensive that is, but how really it seeks to fulfill the command, not just to avoid breaking it. Right? When God speaks in the Sermon on the Mount, he comes to fulfill the law, the fulfillment of the law, 
is to do the right thing and not just to avoid the wrong thing. Jesus fulfills the law. We are to as well through our actions. Now, 135 spells that out. I think that's interesting. Again, uh, I'll come to the the consequences of this uh, for contemporary ethics in a moment. Now, note that there are distinctions made between executing justice in the case of the public, uh, public defense, lawful war and necessary defense on the one hand and murder on the other. The standard is not the sanctity of human life per se. The standard is the sanctity of human life in accordance with the sanctity of God's word. Again, it's under his word, right from the outset. It's not life itself is not sacred. It's sacred when it's in conformity with his image and in conformity with his word. There's a sanctity there because God actually is only the only one who is holy. He's transcendent. We are not. We are human beings. We bear his image, but we are not gods. As I, but I note as an aside the dreadful irony that is, the human, that is in the humanistic states of the 20th century, which have utterly rejected God's authority over human life in the name of propaganda, that have most evidently been guilty of taking human life. We talked about the uh, totalitarian states, but the communist states... Um, also totalitarian, um, have done so on a massive scale like no other uh, time in human history uh, in the name of humanism. Now, the sign of spiritual death is sin, which is exhibited by lawlessness. 1 John 3 verse 4 states that, quote, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. How about that for a definition of sin? You don't know what sin is. 1 John 3 verse 4 tells you sin is lawlessness. Now, it is not just the habitual sinning that God will not tolerate from us. He won't tolerate any sin. And this is a problem since the Bible declares that we are sinners. And this leads to my... There's the question, which one? Are we sinners because we sin, or do we sin because we're sinners? This is a test of orthodoxy. Both are correct. One is nearly correct. It's like uh, in The Princess Bride, he's mostly dead. <laughs> you ever seen it? Are we sinners because we sin, or do we sin because we are sinners? Now, if you say this one, obviously it's correct. We're sinners because we sin. That's but the problem with this first point is that it leaves open the possibility that we might not be sinners because we can avoid sinning. Whereas if sinning is now a part of who we are as a consequence of the fall, then we invariably sin and we can't avoid it. This opens the possibility of Arianism uh, and uh, really Pelagianism is the, is the real issue there. Our, how sinful are we? Can we avoid sinning? And all sorts of heresies pop out of it. And now you see how close these uh, statements are. And of course, as a consequence of this, right, but this is what is meant by original sin. Let me not spend too much time on that. But we are sinners now. The Bible calls us sinners. It doesn't just say that we sin. It says that we are sinners. Fortunately, the Lord of life, our covenant-keeping God, uh, his covenant being his prescribed path to life, it's his character being revealed to us, is not bound by our frailty and he's not caught up in our sin. God sent his only son to endure death 
in the place of his spiritually dead people. Physical death for the spiritual death of his people. Colossians 2 verse 13, which I think I have there. Yes, I do. Uh, speaks of Christians as being, quote, dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh, but God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, that is because when Jesus died, his people died with him. Romans 6, verse 2. And when he rose, his people rose with him to newness of life. Romans 6, verse 4. And the language of Romans 6, 4 is uh, particularly significant. And that's point six there on your sheet. We were buried with him, therefore, by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now I want to explain the word walk because this is important. People talk about the walk of faith. We've already talked about the significance uh, and, and the danger of equivocation, the fallacy of equivocation. People talk about the walk of faith. What is the walk of faith? We talk about my walk, which, which is just sort of a circumlocution for saying my life. That's not what the Bible means by the walk of faith. What does it mean by walking with God? Well, this phrase, the walking with God, is the one that the Bible uses to describe obedience to God's commandments and conformity to his character. It's that phrase, walking with God. It's used very specifically. I mentioned that the sole exception to the refrain uh, in Genesis 5, and he died, was a man by the name of Enoch. We're told that Enoch, uh, Genesis 5, verse 24, walked faithfully with God and then he was no more. The same phrase categorizes the conduct of Noah, Genesis 6, verse 9, of Abraham, uh, Genesis 17, verses 1 to 2, and also, interestingly, the priest Zacharias, who had faithfully awaited the Messiah, Luke 1, verses 5 and 6. And finally, in Psalm 1, this is over uh, on your sheet on the second side, number 7, Psalm 1, that great psalm of wisdom, the one that opens all the psalms and really is the, the key one in many ways, begins with the observation that blessed is the man that who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his day he meditates day and night. Now note he doesn't walk with the law, he walks with the Lord, but he meditates on the law and thereby he walks with the Lord. There's the apposition there of walking, right? And that is because as Romans 6 puts it, there's no neutral ground. We are either slaves of sin or we're slaves of righteousness, but we're slaves one way or the other. We are bound to something. We don't have autonomy. There is no autonomy for anyone. What is Romans 6, how does Romans 6 put it? Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, 
and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. And of course, righteousness is what God longs for from us. And it is the, the reward for that is eternal life. So obedience to God and living are so tied together that only an age of lawlessness, lawlessness such as ours can ignore it. And you can no longer ignore it because you've been just told. Well, you can ignore it. But my conscience is clear on this. But obedience is what is called to us, obedience to God's word, and that leads to life. Now, as I suggested yesterday, the way that it, uh, it, that it has justified this by uh, construing um, the lawless age that we're in uh, has justified lawlessness is by construing personal life as a subcategory of organic life. Right? We're organisms rather than persons. That's the big category. It's all the big capital, life. And under that, we have people and animals and plants and all that sort of stuff. And then you get the Peter Singers of the world saying, well, who are we to be a speciesist and you know, privilege ourselves over the other animals because we're all just belonging to life. And he, his understanding of life is clearly organic life. And again, that's the dominant category of biology, the bioethics, all these discussions. They assume that we fit under the, 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 the category of life and they understand by it organic life. Now, there are similarities between people and animals. We're both created on the sixth day. God loves the animals. Um, he blesses them. He calls us to care for them. He clearly cares for the created order. But once again, remember, he only speaks to us. He only gives us his image. And again, we are responsible to him. That's the key point here. Now, this is the error. Uh, and so they act as if, and here's the thing that it's come up repeatedly here to some extent. When we appeal to natural law, we're in a sense at mercy to this sort of reading. It doesn't sufficiently distinguish. We're in, we're in trouble when we do this. And I think it is actually an error uh, and one of the reasons why the, the Roman Catholic Church has fallen into the, an uneasy alliance with evolution, uh, because it makes biblical law a subset of natural law. And we did hear about Blackstone, and he referred to nature as if it spoke. Now, that is a, a way of getting into the discussion, but, but he clearly means biblical law by nature in that quotation. And that's the problem for us, is when we read this, Quotations from men like Blackstone, foundational figures in the legal establishment, and they use the word nature. What do they mean, what do they mean by the word nature? C.S. Lewis, by the way, in his studies and words, talks about the word nature, and he goes on for 50 pages, parsing out what it means and how different it is under different uh, writers and how different the changes are. So you really need to think in these things, and you need to think with biblical categories, which we're here to try and uh, help you to do. As I say, but the problem here is it makes biblical law a subset of natural law where scripture makes it clear that being in God's personal image categorically distinguishes us from the other animals and the rest of nature. And I add the final proviso that scripture doesn't even use the category of nature. It's a Greek concept. We've inherited it from the Stoics. The word, uh, word nature is not really used in scripture. They don't have this sense. They have the creation. That's not the same as nature. So we can speak of uh, our dog or our car as if it were a person. You know, 
We can personify it. It's a literary device, but that doesn't change its, change its nature. We can say that the dog is a bad dog, but we don't think the dog is morally bad or corrupt. We say we don't like it, but we don't expect the dog to understand right from wrong. We do expect the dog to obey us, but that's not the same thing. It's not responsible. It is accountable in the sense that we will have to, if it kills somebody, an animal, then we will have to exterminate it and so forth. But that's another thing. But too many Christians have been deceived on this front. God determines our human nature by his personal address, and it cannot be understood or adequately defended without recourse to his authoritative word. We can't appeal to the category of being or the fact that we have uh, nephesh, the breath, because the other animals have it as well. So it's not a thing that defines us, it's God's address that defines us. I've heard people def- try and defend the nephesh as well, the, the spirit, the breath. You know, God breathes into clay. Yes, he does, but he also gives this nephesh that's used of the animals in certain instances as well. And we can see this evidence not just in the Genesis text, that is the... Um, special uh, case of humanity, uh, not just in Genesis, but throughout Scripture, and the way of life through obedience to his word. Now, the God who is the way, the truth, and the life offers life to those who obey him throughout the canon of Scripture. It's not just a spiritual promise. In the fifth commandment, he promises what? Long life and prosperity to those who honor their parents. And speaking to his people through Moses on the brink of the promised land, the Lord promises the blessing of life to those who obey and the curse of death to those who disobey him. This is in Deuteronomy 30 there. I'll read just the final verses of that. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life, that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. And we hear the echoes of the same in the Great Commission, the risen Lord Jesus' words to his disciples as they go to repossess the promised land, the real promised land. What is the promised land? It's the entire earth that was once given to Adam as his realm of stewardship. What does Jesus say? Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So I hope I've made my point clear here, life and obedience and how life is related to that. And it cannot be separated from it. Uh, 1 Chronicles 12, verse uh, 32 speaks of the men of Issachar, who, un, men who understood the times. One of the th- uh, things that I wanted to convey here, and I'm, I know the other speakers have as well, is to help you to understand the times that we're living in and how a biblical perspective, a full-orbed 
biblical perspective will help you to live in those times and to act in your chosen professions, whether they're legal or journalistic or whatever. Um, and I know you come from different uh, uh, perspective professions at any rate. We're trying to equip you to be those uh, men of discernment, even if you're women. People of discernment. And it's one of the reasons we spoke on the issue of education and culture on the first day. So in addition to the biblical view on a variety of key issues, we also need to be aware of our cultural context. And I'm going to talk a bit about that now in conjunction with what I've just said about the, the biblical view of life. Um, and it's interesting to observe that those whom we call liberal secularists, that's the most common phrase, but I think we more rightly should speak of as a, autonomous impersonalists, but I don't expect that to catch on. <laughs> I don't expect it to catch on, but it's more correct. They're autonomous impersonalists. They deny the personhood. They affirm the autonomy. Um, have very strange and contradictory categories, categories of understanding related to life. So on the one hand, they tend to oppose killing in justly declared wars. They oppose all wars. And they oppose capital punishment as grievous crimes against humanity, both of them, and on the, uh, which makes them sound like they're hyper-life defenders, you know, the most ardent defenders of life, because they're against war, and they're against uh, capital punishment. On the other hand, however, they not only accept, but they actively promote abortion and euthanasia. And they've done so through two things, legislation and education. It's their shot throughout. That's why we talked, I talked about education and this whole uh, conference really is focused on the law, but the two go hand in glove. We can't have one going forward without the other. So these contradictory stances towards life only make sense if we put their overriding sense of autonomy together with the only human institution they recognize, the state. Now, I heard Jeffrey's talk there. The only institution, human institution, that they recognize is the state. The reason they recognize the state is because it's their God. The reason it's their God is because they see the state as the autonomous person personified, made large. And the, the purpose of the state is to execute legislation of autonomy everywhere. If you open up any sociology textbook, you'll see that they will acknowledge two poles. They'll talk about the individual, they'll talk about society. There are no mediating institutions. They won't talk about the church, they won't talk about the family, or if they do, they'll see them as opponents. Uh, and they won't talk about um, the school, for that matter. There are no mediating institutions. There is the individual in the state. Now, when I went to... Uh, High school, there was a book, uh, the course was called Man in Society. It wouldn't be called that anymore, I show my age. Uh, it would sound sexist, but still, it, it describes that there's man, the individual, the autonomous, and then there's society. In law school, they, they call it state and citizen. State and citizen. Okay. But there you go. State and citizen, you have the two poles, there is nothing else. And, the, and, and your citizenship is wholly in the state. You don't belong, there is no other uh, kingship other than that of the state. Now, when, we, when they do this, if they call yourself a citizen, whether they call yourself an individual, they don't mean individual. They don't mean citizen. 
in the classical sense. To be a, an individual in the classical sense depends on the existence and the presence of other individuals. They are the ones that will affirm your individuality. You can't be individual, by the way, without other people being there to, to see it. Right? You can declare that you are, but there is no real distinction. You need, you need difference in order to have that distinction. But according to autonomy, there is no individuality anymore. They're just sort of lumps of the exact same thing. This is why I say even when they use the word individual or citizen, what they, what they mean is still the autonomous organism. And how the state is going to bring about that autonomy in all areas of life so that there are no bonds other than the state. This is why it's tyrannous, by the way. I speak more about this in the second chapter of uh, my book. Never mind that. Um, so individual, the word individual, we still use it. It means a lot to people. And we even use the word person, but it doesn't mean person anymore. We, and individual doesn't mean that. And citizen doesn't mean that. It's all been corroded by autonomy. Um, actually, it's even stronger than that. Uh, to uh, acknowledge the legitimacy of other people impedes my aim of absolute autonomy. So they have to get rid of their distinctiveness. We all have to think exactly the same things. And you will know, in political correctness, that is precisely what is happening. Individual expression, including in particular religious expression, is being tamped down. Why? Because it offends the autonomy, which is really the aim of all public discourse now. And the reason that's the aim is because they see that as the state's aim. And they ask the state to affirm it, to, to uh, bring it about, and it does so. Now, these are attacks that are happening under the banner of citizenship or individuality. Uh, the ACLU will, will go after these all the time. And again, that's because their understanding of the human has been so corroded that it's not the person, it's not the individual, it's just an org organic form of, uh, I don't even know what to call it anymore, personhood, I guess. And what, as I said, the state uh, does here is it, see, it does the bidding of the autonomous organism, and that's what they see the government is there to do. And I said that it was totalitarian because what it does is it denies the God-given role of human institutions such as the family, the church, and the school. And so the big government advocates of our day, and if you live in Canada, you, that means all three political parties. Um, they'll affirm only these two things. They'll affirm the autonomous individual and they will affirm the state. The difference between the conservatives and the others is that the conservatives want to do big government on the cheap. And they're not even good at that. Whereas the others are, you know, they're all in on big government and they do so without blushing. And the, the cost, that doesn't matter. So in a sense, they just believe in it more strongly. The conservatives aren't real believers. And it's becoming increasingly clear that all parties see the role of the government and the Supreme Court to lie in producing legislation that will codify autonomy in all areas of life. And they won't even recognize the distinction of sex. They will appeal to gender, right? I'm going to talk about that on Saturday, I guess it is. 
gender is now overriding the distinction of sexual, male-female. Again, what makes them male or female? It's not their genitalia, it's God's address that says they're so. The genitalia are secondary to that. God pronounces them so, but I'll speak more about that on Saturday. Now, as I said, the sixth commandment, may me backtrack and move forward here as well. The sixth commandment forbids murder. But what does the Bible say about abortion specifically? I want to get to that. It doesn't use the word abortion as such. But we do note the following. This is uh, Exodus 21. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who, who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. This is an example of case law. The case law. And it sets out a minimal case, uh, by a minimal case, certain implications. Firstly here, uh, we see an accidental abortion. The aim was not to cause the woman to lose the child. But it happened. Now, if the penalty for non-premeditated abortion which happened not by a premeditation, but by a criminal negligence, is so severe, it's obvious that deliberately induced abortion, medicalized abortion, state-authorized abortion, done in the name of autonomy, of choice, is strongly forbidden. It carries, uh, here we can see that abortion was seen as murder. It carried the death penalty. If, the, if a, a loss of life even happens, even when it's not premeditated, so even if mother and child are not injured in the accident, the negligent man must be fined in consultation with the husband and judges. In other words, God's law sets around a pregnant woman and her embryo a hedge of protection. Second to none. In scripture, a mother bird with eggs or a young is protected by the law to prevent the exploitation of God's creation. That's interesting in itself as well. And if birds are protected, how much more are mothers to be? Now, the church has had to confront the fact of abortion uh, throughout its history, certainly throughout its early history. In the Greco-Roman world, uh, abortion wa was uh, not a practice as such because it would have been very uh, unsafe, although it did happen. More common would be to deliver the child and just set the child out to die, infanticide. Uh, the Greek philosophers liked both of them. Thought both were good. So in Plato's Republic, it makes it clear. He says that the state is the ultimate order and functional God and can order abortion, infanticide, and incest as it requires. Uh, Aristotle's position is not different. It says that uh, he required abortions when the state permitted uh, when state permitted births had exceeded the, the the state's ability to look after them. At that point, abortions are permitted. But the state is going to determine this. Uh, Plato stated that it was useful, quote, to dispose of the infant on the understanding that the fruit of such a union, that is, that it's not sanctioned by the state, is not to be reared. But the state will determine this. Um, the church, for its part, condemned abortion from the very beginning. I've put a quotation at the bottom there from Tertullian. 
Tertullian wrote, to hinder a birth is merely, and that is abortion, is merely a speedier man killing. Nor does it matter whether you take away a life that is born or destroy one that is coming to birth. That is a man that is going to be one. You have the fruit already in its seed. The apostolic constitutions called for vengeance upon those who destroy the unborn child. And so serious was this to the church that because the Roman Empire did not see abortion as a crime in the way the Bible does, the church pronounced its own judgment on this. An ecclesiastical sentence. What was the sentence? Penance for life. They weren't disobeying God. They had no authority to take a life on this. But penance for life was the... uh, the judgment on this. And the Council of Ancrea, 314 AD, uh, noted this, this ruling and limited the restitution or penance to 10 years, but still a severe sanction. But among the pagans of the day, such as the famous Roman historian Tacitus, he found it repugnant that the Jews would not kill babies. It was repugnant. And he wasn't the only one. I'll I'll quote Meredith Klein here, one who I'm not very fond of in general, but it's cited in John Frame, so that's okay then. (laughs) Induced abortion was so abhorrent to the Israelite mind that it was not necessary to have a specific prohibition of dealing with it in the Mosaic law. The Middle Assyrian laws attest to an abhorrence that was felt for this crime, even in the midst of the heathendom around Israel, lacking, though it did, the illumination of special revelation. For in those laws, a woman guilty of abortion was condemned to be impaled on stakes. It is hard to imagine a more damning commentary on what is taking place in enlightened America today than that, than that provided by this legal witness out of the conscience of benighted paganism. End quote. Now, today, it's not only uh, legal, and of course, it's uh, the state controls these processes. It's also seen as a human right. Note that the right of the human is now being juxtaposed to the rights that God gives us. And the rights that we have are the right to take life. And the modern pro-abortion movement after the collapse of the Soviet Union, tied itself in closely with the Marxist, the cultural Marxist movement for political correctness, which has entrenched itself in our universities. It did so back in the 80s. Now they are there in full force. And as biblical faith has declined, abortions have increased. You can track it from 1971. You can see that the abortions rise and rise and rise. Now it's nearly 100,000 per year. It's hard to do the statistics because the Ontario government has just suppressed the statistics. So that uh, it's too, um, what was the phrase they used? Inflammatory? I don't know what it was. So they suppressed those particular statistics. You know, 100,000 abortions tend to raise eyebrows. Um, and those are abortions that your taxes have paid for. The sovereignty of the state is, uh, taxation is the, is the declaration of sovereignty. Your taxes have gone to pay for this. So you are paying to Caesar. But you're paying to Caesar what, that which is not Caesar's. The right to take life. 
Um, in 2006, uh, uh, sorry, U.S. research shows that the reasons most often, often for uh, cited for abortion is, quote, they're not ready for responsibility and, quote, inadequate finances. 1% concern rate, which is usually the argument made against it. Women are often pressured into abortions, and the growing body of research shows that the physical, emotional, and mental ramifications for abortion are serious, including premature deliveries of full-term children with all the attendant risks, including death, uh, and endometriosis, as well as a six times greater risk of suicide. So this, and I, an increased risk of breast cancer and other complications, mental health issues, rampant. That's not talked about. The social cost extends beyond that of the life taken to the mother and the father and the families who are aware of this. Now, the primary motivations for abortion found in various studies include the preservation of beauty, you know, I'm going to lose my figure, the continued enjoyment of freedom and irresponsibility, a hatred of life, a hatred of men, uh, the alleged imperfection of a fetus, and to this, and I think this is really fascinating, American doctors writing back in the 60s, they say this before abortion was permitted. And yeah, I think you'll like this. No human being is perfect. Would the world, moreover, really be a better place after the destruction of the millions of defective individuals? Has the world gained or lost from the services of the epileptic Michelangelo? the deaf Thomas Edison, or the hunchback Steinmetz of the Roosevelts, both the asthmatic Theodore and the polio-paralyzed Franklin, FDR. Uh, it must be recognized that liberalized abortion laws would logically be followed by pressures for legalized euthanasia. The attack on life is essentially the same. And they're absolutely right. And so now the pressure is not just for, in this country, abortion on demand, but euthanasia on demand as a humanitarian thing. Uh, in the UK's Daily Mail online, there was an article from the NHS, the National Health Service, which is the uh, UK's equivalent of what we have here in Canada Health, uh, where a doctor has blown the whistle that the NHS kills 130,000 elderly patients every year. It's called the Liverpool Path, is that right, Joe? Care, path. care pathway. You're set on the care pathway, and it's a euphemism for euthanizing. 130 are killed off every year. Now, this is not publicized, but it, it is what is happening. The reason that they do that is because the cost of keeping them is so high the reason given. They don't have enough hospital beds. So the state is responsible for health, the state is responsible for salvation. Because they can't pay the costs of this, they're gonna be in the death industry. Now it should be also be noted that Hitler's sterilization laws and eugenics programs were modeled in the USA and in Canada. Uh, by the work and legislative preparation of U.S. evolutionary biologist Dr. Harry Laughlin. Uh, he was awarded an honorary doctorate by Hit Hitler's government. Should have been a warning bell at that point. 
But eugenics, which is the attempt to control and guide the alleged evolutionary processes by controlling who reproduces and who is born, is back with us in full force. Uh, the uh, gender side debates are precisely around that. It's a form of eugenics. Not surrounding the, uh, the look of the child, but the gender of the child. I'm getting what I want. Now, the founder of the modern pro-abortion birth control movement was the racist eugenicist, Dr. Margaret Sanger. She was a white supremacist. She even addressed a meeting of the Ku Klux Klan. Um, she argued that, the, quote, the brains of Australian aborigines were only one step more evolved than chimpanzees and just under blacks, Jews, and Italians. <laughs> I just wanted to see if Jeffrey was listening, but that was actually... I didn't add that. That was in there. Now, her early clinics were initially targeted and located to control the birth of Slavs, Latins, and Jews. And she later put the clinics by African-American communities. And Planned Parenthood itself reports that the, of the 132,314 abortions it alone performed in 1991, it's a lot more now, in the U.S., 42.7% were on African-Americans and other minorities, even though they make up only 19.7% of the population. So it's more than double. That was a campaign issue, by the way, in the last American election. Um, Cain made an issue of this. He was right to make an issue of it. And this is the appalling, uh, the appalling defense of the practice by Obama is, has not passed unnoticed uh, amongst black Christians uh, in the States. Uh, abortion legalizes murder in the life of the family, which only pagan states have ever allowed, so that the cradle of life is turned into a place of death. And now it's taken, in the U.S., more, uh, more lives than all the wars in U.S. history. From, 19, from 1775 to 1975, uh, it took, uh, in wars, there were 1,205,291 lives that were lost in the wars. How many abortions in that period? Eight million. Compare the opposition to war, even in just wars that everyone will acknowledge, compare that to what's happening in the abortion industry. Now there's something profoundly evil in this wanton killing and it is the love of death that's basic to sinful man. Now I think this is important. What motivates this? What drives it? I talked about autonomy, I did talk about the state, but why the autonomy, why so hard, why so unwilling to recognize what's happening? Pictures now make it clear to everyone. Picture is certainly worth a thousand words on this. Um, the Bible says that the love of death marks people and cultures in rebellion against God. They're suicidal. There's an inseparable link between sin and death. We saw that in the Genesis text. There is a spiritual rebellion. Separation from the source of life in Christ means a love of and an addiction to death. Because Christ alone is the resurrection and the life. I spent considerable time talking about that. 
And, and Christ's atonement and lordship means separating ourselves from sin and death to life and righteousness, and in Christ the power of death is broken. So abortion is a return to paganism. It's a denial of the sixth commandment in which a sovereign God governs the universe and all people rather than the control of life which is thought to be in the hands of man and his agency, the state. And I finish by saying this. Abortion is an attempt to play God. When men play God... They attempt to control life. And they, when they attempt to control life, it goes terribly wrong. Uh, they try to take, grant and take away life, not in accordance with the law, although you can cut, produce legislation that will support it, but note how lawlessness is, how immoral, note how morality is separated from the law at that point. Because the moral character of the law has gone out the window. And it's ironic, as I said, that uh, we're so against capital punishment for murderers and evildoers, where God requires justice and a life to be taken, but we're going to execute capital punishment against the innocent, the unborn. In the effort to be autonomous organisms, counterfeit gods, that's what we're going to do. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.